0: Good morning. Our text this morning comes from John 1, 12, and 13. Uh, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that it's written to us and that we have it, Lord. I thank you for this season of hope and joy. I pray that you would help us to lay aside all the busyness and the chaos of our lives this season and just from our day to day, and that we would be able to enter into the wonder of your son, Emmanuel, coming down to be with us. I pray that you'd open our hearts to the message this morning and help us to come away renewed in the knowledge of you with hearts ready to pursue you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: All right, we are continuing our series on uh, preparation of Advent, and we're doing so because of how we are called to prepare our hearts for Christmas. And, And last week, in the verses leading up to this, we saw how Jesus was described as the light of the world. And a light that we said only brings us any hope when you understand the depth of your darkness. Otherwise, when we talk about the light of the world, it's just sentimentality. But when we can see how dark we are and how dark our world is, then it brings incredibly um, great hope to know that he's the light of the world. And so in in much the same way, this week we're going to be moving on uh, to see how God brings us at Christmas, uh, not only being the light of the world, but we also get a new birth Ourselves, See, Christmas is not just about the, the birth of this baby in a manger, but it's also about the new birth that's offered to each one of us because of that birth. And just as the hope of Jesus being the light of the world is really nothing to hope for unless you can see how dark your heart is, in, in much the same way we're going to see how the hope of this new birth, which is what Advent is calling us to do, really won't bring us much hope unless we can see just how dead we really are on the inside and how desperately we are in need of this new birth. And let me just set the stage for what we're talking about here a little bit. I I think that most people in in the world, frankly including most Christians, would define sin as, if a person even admits such a thing exists, but if they do, they would define sin as doing something really, really bad, right? Something really wrong. Uh, Sins are those bad things that we do. And of course, by defining it that way, it makes it a lot easier for us to justify how others are doing these really bad things out there, while my indiscretions, we could call them that, are a little more nuanced, right? Um, I mean, their sins are black and white. Look what they did, look what they said, look how they treated me, but mine, well, they're a little more complicated, and so we try to find ways to justify ourselves, to excuse away our sins, to, to rationalize them, to put them in a context that makes them not look quite so bad. But you see, the Bible makes it very clear that we need to stop this silly game of comparison because the, the Bible defines our sins not really even as the bad things that we do, but that those bad things that we all do, I mean, that's, re- that's really just the fruit of our sin. That's the various expressions of, of that sin in our lives. But the core of sin is really self. It's self-absorption. It's self-love. It's self-protection. It's the self, being in rebellion against God. In fact, probably the most practical way that we can define what sin is 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 to define it this way. It's taking any good thing, any pleasant thing, any joyful thing, any life-giving thing, in making it our main thing, our number one thing. See, it's not sinful, for example, to want things that you don't have. There's nothing wrong with that. But if any of those things become your main thing, you will do anything to get it. And you will lie, and you'll cheat, and you'll steal, and you'll step over other people, all fruits of sin, because you don't just want it, you have to have it. You you need it, because you let the having of it define who you are as a person. Or take as another example that a lot of you have probably struggled with. We've gotten past this stage. Thank you, Lord. Uh, It's not simple to want really good, amazing kids who are obedient and respectful at all times. But if that becomes your main thing, right, you will manipulate and abuse your kids because you will make it very clear to them that your approval of them depends upon how they act. And it depends on it because your approval as a person before the eyes of others depends on how they act in front of them. And and really, we do this with everything. We take good things and we turn them into ultimate things that then begin to define us. And here's the reason why. See, the Bible tells us that we were designed uh, particularly by God intentionally and uniquely amongst all the creation to be made after God's own image. And, And God did that so that we could have a special Relationship with him of intimacy. A, a relationship in which all of our lives are centered fully around him. And that they were to find their joy, and their delight in being in community with him. See, we were designed, for example, to need security. And when our lives are centered around him, we have a deep security. Of, we have a love that will never let us go. But when it's centered around the things we can't control, like our kids and our jobs and our reputations, our security is constantly being threatened. We are also designed to be fully loved and to feel and enjoy and be filled up by that love. And when our lives are centered around God, we actually have that kind of love, demonstrated not only in making us uniquely after his own image, but then rescued back into relationship with him by the sacrifice of his own life. But when you center that need for love around another person, it becomes tenuous. Because the love of other people comes and goes. People hurt us. People disappoint us. And so what we find is that we are hungry, desperately hungry, for a love that we can never have from other people. And And on and on and on it goes throughout life. And what this produces in us is a deep insecurity that then begins to chase after all sorts of really good things out there in hopes that maybe this could give me that love. Maybe that thing can bring me the security that I'm looking for. Maybe this will finally make me feel like I'm somebody. And the end result is that we become radically self-absorbed. Because if we're honest, all we ever think about, every decision that we make is centered around me, right? My comfort. My security, my happiness, my fulfillment. I mean, I've got to be honest, I really haven't thought about anybody else's comfort or security this week. Have you thought about mine? Probably not. Because that's who we are. We are, by nature, self-absorbed creatures. And so I don't have to tell you that in a world where everybody is self-absorbed, we don't get along all that well, right? Because my selfishness rubs up against your selfish desires. And so we're competitive and we're mistrustful of one another and we're filled with fear and we're frankly willing to step all over each other in order to get the things that we desperately want and need. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once put it this way. He said, "'It is ever the Holy Spirit's work "'to turn our eyes away uh, from self to Jesus, "'but Satan's work is just the opposite of this, "'for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves "'instead of Christ.'" He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You'll never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold on Jesus. All these are thoughts about self. And we will never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold on Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even your faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ, but as to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We will never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep your eyes simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh on your mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. See, we are completely and utterly self-absorbed. And that's what that's I think why the Bible says that we we have a need for something far more transformational than can't we all just get along, right? We need something more than John Lennon singing, "Let's just imagine a world where we all get along," because of course we can't, right? I mean, you can imagine it all you want, but it's never going to happen in an insecure, self-absorbed world. It's never going to happen in a world where everybody focuses primarily on themselves. And therefore, what we need is a new birth. We need a new heart. I need a new me that's no longer full of me. And that's one of the major hopes that Christmas Christmas points us to here. As John says here in our passage, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. <clears throat> we need, as, as Jesus actually very soon afterward tells, tells Nicodemus, to be born again. And you see, the heart of Christmas and the center of our hopes is not just for a baby born in a manger, but what that birth actually means for each one of us. And what it means is that now we too can experience a new birth that gives us a new heart, that enables us to pull away from the self-absorption of sin and to begin to live an entirely new way. So I want us just to spend some time this morning looking at what it is that this new birth that John talks about here, what does it give us? What does it bring to us? And the first thing we see that it gives us is a new status. Immediately, right? We get a new status as a person. Because of what Jesus did in coming to earth and living for us and dying for us, we have a new core identity. We move from being restless wanderers out there in the world in search of love, in search of meaning, in search of purpose, anywhere and everywhere that we can possibly find it. But we now become children of God who are adopted sons and daughters of the King who are filled with love and security. And you see, that's now our new identity. You know, for thousands of years, people have lived with this deep sense that we don't like to talk about, but we all feel, and that is that I I must have been made for something more than this dog-eat-dog world of competitiveness. This sense of being on the outside looking in. I, I just don't feel at home. And whether we've been able to define it that way or not, we all innately sense that we have been expelled from the presence of God, or at least expelled from something that keeps us from being and doing what we were created to do. C.S. Lewis puts this so well. He says, at present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And, and you see, this is the hope of Christmas that John is talking about here—the long-awaited hope of the Messiah who would come to fix all of this. He says he's come, right? He's here, and it's no longer just a hope, but it's—it's it's a reality—a reality that makes us now insiders. We are beloved children. You know, because we were designed by God to find our identity outside of ourselves in a relationship with God, when we were expelled from His presence because of our rebellion against Him, we have to go out and look for that identity somewhere outside of ourselves. That's the way God made us. We can't help it. It's our nature. But the natural bent of the human heart is that it forces us to look anywhere and everywhere except to God for it. We will look for all the remnant images of the God that we were designed for but in images that we can control rather than in community with our daddy king that we can't control. And so we tend to to ground our core identities in things like work and family and and achievement and education and beauty. Uh, We look to our own particular proficiencies in life and our giftings. We're all looking to something that we can say, okay, now I feel okay about myself. Now I I know I'm somebody because at least I do this or I have that or I'm not like that. We need to know that we are loved and valued. In fact, probably the best way to determine the places that you in particular draw your identity from is to fill in this blank. I am a blank, right? I'm a doctor, I'm a father, I'm a Southerner, I'm an American, I'm a conservative, I'm a good person, whatever. And and, and you see, typically, these are the places that we tend to draw uh, from to to gain our core sense of identity as as a person. But if you've been paying attention at all in your quest to do that, you've come to see that none of these things really work. I mean, the places that we tend to draw from to get our identity, sometimes they simply fail us. Uh, because we just can't get there. Or even if we do get there, it just doesn't satisfy us. Our, our jobs fail us. Our, our kids fail us. Our, our spouses fail us. Our own hearts fail us. And, and, if, and if they don't fail us, the, the searches for meaning and significance certainly are exhausting to pursue. Because no matter how much that we can achieve in life, there's always more to be done. In fact, I think the one thing that everything that we chase after in this world has in common is this one thing, that is we, what we really most need is more, right? It's always more. And it's exhausting because there's never an end. And not only it is it exhausting, but you know that you're constantly filled with disappointment because even the things that we do get never live up to our expectations. It, it always falls short. It, it leaves us deeply dissatisfied. And so I think as a result, we tend, unfortunately, to destroy the people around us because the things that we're after tend to be competitive. And very often, in order to bring myself up, I have to tear you down. That's just the way the world works. I mean, think about this very practically. What happens when you choose to find your identity in being a good father or a good mother? When you choose to do that, you have, your kids have to be perfect if that's your source of identity. I mean, especially in public, where you're going to feel like you're a loser or a failure as a parent. And not only that, but you'll put incredible pressure on your kids to have to perform in order to make you look good. And if you do that, your kids are going to feel used, not loved. They're going to feel abused in your quest to find your own sense of self. And it will drive your kids away from you. And so ironically, if your main thing in life is to be a great parent, you'll most likely be an utter failure as a parent because the pressure is just too much. Nobody can stand under the weight of all that expectation. I think the same holds true with marriage. I think it's just the default assumption of our culture that marriage is designed for uh, self-fulfillment. You know, you complete me. Sounds romantic as a movie tagline, but until you think about the incredible... Pressure and expectations that it puts on your spouse that you have to complete me. If you need another person to find you special, if you need another person who will never turn their back on you to be reassured that you're valuable, to fill your heart with the love that it needs, if you're looking to another person to satisfy all of your deep longings as a person, that will put so much pressure on your spouse because you're just simply using them to fill yourself up that it eventually will lead to resentment. And it leads to what people often call falling out of love, right? Which simply means you don't fulfill my personal idols in the way that you used to before I wore you out. Listen, most marriages that end, end because of selfishness. They fall apart because they fail to see that the very purpose of marriage is to partner with God to lead each other to the place where one day God is going to remove all of their brokenness and all of their fears will be gone and all of their weaknesses will be perfected and they will be completely renewed to look like Jesus. And marriage is a commitment to walk with that person along that journey because, you see, the essence of marriage is selflessness and the reason behind most divorce is selfishness. Listen, the love of self is the destructive force in the world. Every attempt to build a sense of identity apart from God is inherently selfish, right? I'm trying to make a name for myself. I need to feel, uh, I need to be better than you in some way. I, I, I feel intimidated when I'm around people who are better than me, smarter than me, wiser than me, better looking than me, because it's all about me, right? And you see, John here is giving us a much stronger sense of identity. It's a status that can never diminish or fail, nor can it increase either. It's a status that makes us steady because it it can't be threatened by anything that we do or don't do or anything that happens to us. It's a status that's actually an objective reality. It's not just a feeling. I mean, you can be emotional about your new status, but even if you're not... It has no bearing on your status. It can't change a thing. Because what happens here is you move from being an orphan who's a restless wanderer looking somewhere, anywhere in the world to find love and happiness and security. And sometimes, as a result, you don't feel like you're a child of God. Some days you just don't feel like you belong. Some days you don't feel like you're okay with God. Sometimes you actually feel cold. And distant from God. And therefore, there are some days that you act like a child and other days that you act like an orphan. But none of that has any effect on your new status. It can certainly affect your ability to enjoy it. You can lose your confidence to live like it's true. But you can never be unadopted. Because God loves you. Why? Well, as Hunter said, he loves you because he loves you. Because he loves you. It's a permanent change of status. As Peter puts it, he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Peter says God chose you Intentionally, he made you royal and holy and special because he loves you. And because of the birth of Jesus, it opens the way for this second birth where we are reborn spiritually. And it changes our status from being outsiders to being insiders. And it's something that's mine, it, it can't be lost. It's absolutely secure because of the amazing work of my big brother Jesus. Listen, I know that most of you grew up in a religious culture where God was a harsh tyrant that had to be appeased. He's often portrayed as a distant God who's out to get you. He's very quick to punish you. He's constantly disappointed in you. But listen to the heart of the real God of the Bible. He is enamored with you. See, the prophet Zechariah tells us that God is writing and singing love songs over you every single day. He's a perfect dad who's controlling everything in this world to heal you and to restore you and to remake you into the image of his own son, Jesus, so that he can spend eternity with you. And he can hardly wait for the reunion. Listen, do you understand that your core identity is that of an adopted child of the king? See, before you're a doctor, before you're a parent, before you're a a student, before you're white or black, before you're a southerner or a Yankee, God forbid, your, your number one identity is that of being a beloved child of the king. I mean, think about this. It's amazing to think about the fact that we have the forgiveness of God, I mean, we sing about it, we talk about it all the time, but the intimacy of belonging that's offered here is something that's far sweeter and much greater than that. Because you're not just forgiven, you're wanted by the God of the universe. He chose you, he adopted you, he pursued you. Do you hear that? You are far more than forgiven. As amazing as that is, God wanted you. You are desired And God is after you because he wants you. Now, that's the first thing that this new birth brings us a new status immediately. But now, the second thing this new birth brings us is a new power, a new ability to actually be able to live in a way that fits with this new status. See, John says we're now born of God, which means that he gives us a supernatural change of heart, he gives us a, a new disposition. And very soon after this, when we get to chapter 3, we hear again Jesus telling Nicodemus, listen, if you want to be right with God, it's not enough to keep all the laws and the rules you Pharisees do. You must be born again. See, it's one thing to have the desire to live differently, but it's quite another to actually have the ability to do it. And that's what's being offered here. See, simply trying harder isn't enough. I mean, if you think about it, the main path that religion offers for people to be able to change is all external pressure and coercion. It's duty, it's obligation, it's try harder. And though that can lead to some change of behavior, it does nothing to change my heart. Listen, you're not a Christian simply because you want to change, but you're a Christian because the Spirit invades your heart and transforms your ability to be able to live this way. And this is not just a one-time empowerment that the Spirit brings us, fortunately, because if it were, I think we'd all be a bit discouraged because it doesn't look like that power was really enough to change me very much because I'm still a mess and I'm still incredibly selfish. And fortunately, this is an ongoing power of transformation as the Spirit daily does His work of focusing my eyes on Jesus and on the beauty of what He's done for me, on the full freedom of what He's purchased for me and therefore it shows me just how loved and secured and treasured and valued that I really am. Listen, God spoke about this years before through the prophet Ezekiel when he says, one day, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws And this is what John is talking about here. A new heart of flesh that comes alive. And we develop new desires that want to please God and obey Him instead of just doing it out of duty and obligation. We develop a new outlook on life where we see ourselves as loved and cherished and secure. Where we see ourselves as objects of His affections. And we ourselves develop a new seat of affections where we move from serving God because we have to, to actually being able to say things like, I was once blind, but now I see, right? Because now I love God. I don't just serve Him. And see, the changes that happen with this new birth are things like, you begin to see things that you never saw before, where God's love moves from being theoretical and generic to now becoming personal and overwhelming, You move from an intellectual awareness of God to having a sense of his favor on your heart that you just can't live without. As the psalmist says, your love is better than life. Your prayer life moves from, God, I need this and this and this and this, and if you can take that away, it moves from that to, God, how could you love somebody like me? I'm amazed and overwhelmed that you would pursue me. So you start to become convicted about sin and brokenness, things that that used to never really bother you very much now do. Things that you tended to make excuses for are are exposed as just being selfishness and self-protection. And you start to hear God's voice speaking speaking to you through His Word. As the Bible moves from just merely being words on a page to being a personal conversation with your heart that thrills you and convicts you without crushing it. See, grace now moves from being a theological concept that I can talk about to something that leads your heart to weep over it. That God can actually love somebody like me. See, Christianity moves from being a Sunday thing or a religious thing to now becoming immensely personal because you're constantly saying, Jesus loved me and he died for me. Obedience moves from being a Pharisee kind of duty, you know, an outside-in kind of change, to becoming a delight in actually being able to do the will of God. And you begin to see God's commands as beautiful and not burdensome. And see, though all of this is is tremendously a comfort to us, this new birth, if we're honest, is deeply disruptive to our lives. You start to have an entirely new agenda for your life. You have different purposes that drive you. You develop new priorities and values. You begin to see yourself as a citizen of another kingdom. And you feel the call to take up the family business as agents of change in this world. And listen, all of that description is, it boils down to this. My question to you this morning is, is this your experience at all? Or are you comfortable just sitting in your sins hoping that God's forgiveness somehow is going to be enough? Or do you sense that God is pursuing you and that he's always coming to disturb your world, to disrupt your complacency? Does he confront you when you sin and drive you to repentance? Is he renewing your passion for listening to his voice and joyfully obeying his commands? See, this is the experience that God desires for us. And this is what we have as a result of this new birth. And John is reminding us here that one of the core messages of Christmas is that the birth of Jesus gives you a new birth. A birth that gives you a new status that leads to the sending of His Spirit that enables you to slowly grow in your ability to experience it and to enjoy it. And listen, if if you've never come to this place in your own personal walk with God, if this is not an experience that you can say, I I really can't identify with that at all. This is something that God offers to anyone who desires it, right here, right now. And all it takes is nothing. All it takes is the dying to yourself. All it takes is the dying to all of your dreams of life apart from God. Dying to all of your schemes out there to try to find joy and satisfaction and validation from the things that you are or the things that you do. And then coming alive to what Jesus did for you. See, all it takes is surrendering to his rule and his authority. All it takes is falling on his mercy and grace. All it takes is nothing. But most of us don't have nothing. We can't have nothing. We're always striving after something. And if all of this sounds a bit scary, listen, you're being asked to fall into the arms of the one who loved you enough to die for you. And that's a pretty safe place to fall. Listen, the only way that any of us can receive this Christmas gift is with empty hands. You know, the song Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I claim. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. How I do the fountain flood. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Is that your heart attitude today? Listen, when you do come to Him like that, everything changes. You get a new status instantly. And you get a new heart that's soft and grows over time. But if, if any of us are going to be able to remember this at this Christmas season, because, boy, this stuff is hard to remember, we're going to have to slow down. And we're going to have to intentionally hold very loosely to the priorities that we've been carrying and allow God to rearrange everything so that we are booting off of the heart of God and not off of the old agendas that we still pursue that really want to control us. As we close, hear these words from the old Christmas carol as a reminder of what God is offering to us today. How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the amazing message of Christmas, that the birth of this baby that we so readily celebrate means the new birth of our own hearts and the opportunity to get a new heart that actually changes us from the inside out so that we don't have to spend our days wishing we could be better or longing for something in this world to satisfy us and fill us up. But we have something concrete that we can turn to that has done that. And it's a thing that we were designed from the very beginning to do, but we lost. And I pray that you would help for us to, especially in the busyness of this season, to be able to let go of all the agendas and things that we feel like we, we have to get done, we have to accomplish, we have to do. And he would help for us to be able to just rest in the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. That those of us who are restless wanderers and orphans can be called children of the King. And that we can be loved and wanted and adored on the inside because of Jesus. And we pray this in his name.